0: If we haven't met, my name is Brady and I'm an imperfect follower of Jesus. And if you're wondering about this community, we're just a bunch of imperfect people seeking to demonstrate our passion for God and God's passion for people. You've probably heard that if you've been around Mosaic for a while. It's something that we've said since the very beginning that we exist to demonstrate our passion for God and then to demonstrate God's passion for people. That's what we're we're about here at Mosaic Church. And and, and the passage that we're in today is just saturated in that reality, that desire, that call, that responsibility, that opportunity that God has given us. If you're new, we are in uh, uh, the New Testament in in a book that was actually a letter written by one of the earliest church planting missionaries. His name was Paul. And he was writing to this guy he had discipled and mentored for about ten years. His name was Timothy. They traveled around the known world. They'd planted churches. Uh, Timothy was a part of many conversations that Paul had. He was a part of a few of the letters that Paul wrote that we have in the scriptures. And so Timothy, right? He knew what he was. He knew what he was doing. Paul had trained him well. Uh, Paul had gone to this church or actually the city had planted this church in Ephesus. And this this church became one of the most important churches in the known world. It became the epicenter where Christianity was expanding in modern-day Turkey. It was a church planting church. And Paul, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, he spoke to the elders, to the leaders of that church, and he said, hey, be careful, because what's gonna happen is some false teachers are gonna arise in your midst. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Paul goes to prison. He gets released from prison. He goes with Timothy to Ephesus and he leads Timothy Timothy in Ephesus and says, Timothy, I want you to address this issue. Paul goes on. He gets put in prison. And then while he's in prison, you can imagine he's thinking about Timothy his son in the faith whom he loves. And he's thinking about this church that he loves and he spent a lot of time with. And he's thinking about the false teachers and what has happened in their midst. And so he starts to craft this letter, 1 Timothy. And he begins the letter by reminding Timothy, what is the point for which we were created? He says, what's the aim of our charge? And it's the Greek word telos, which means the end for which God has created us, humans and the church. And he says the telos or the aim of our charge, it's love. And not just any kind of love, but divine Jesus love. It's agape love. It's giving of yourself sacrificially for the good of the other. That's what God created us to do. That's what he formed the church for. And this love, it's incredible. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, it does not rejoice and unrighteousness, but it rejoices in what? The truth. Yeah, this love, this divine biblical Jesus love is love that is centered in God's truth. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. That you can't fully love people unless you're embracing the way of God, because the way of God is the way that is best for humanity. And then Paul talks about these, uh, these false teachers. And he says, they're spending a lot of time in the early chapters of Genesis and they're beginning to speculate about things. And they're doing it because they want people to think they're impressive. They wanna gather a band of followers that look at them and think, oh, you're awesome. How did you see these incredible things in the scriptures? And they wanna have some financial gain. That's the motivation they have for teaching. And Paul says, hey, you're using the law unlawfully. That's not the way that the scriptures tell us to handle them. And Paul says if you're handling the scriptures accurately, you, you see a couple things. One, you see that God gave the scriptures for people who were in need of the scriptures. He gives us a list of all of these people that Timothy and all the people that would have read this letter would have been like, oh yeah, those are obviously sinners. And Paul said, God gave the law for those people. And he said, just in case you're misunderstanding what I'm talking about, he says, I'm the worst of the worst. So anything you have on that list, any person that you have on, in your mind, when you read this list, he says, I was worse than any of them. And he said, God did that intentionally because choosing me, the worst of the worst, actually displays his character better. It better, more fully, more accurately displays the gospel than if he chose someone who everyone would be like, yo, obviously you chose him. Obviously you chose her. He's like, no, no, no. God chose the worst of the worst to demonstrate what he is like. And then he ends the first chapter just praising Jesus. And now we start in chapter two, but before we do, I want to get our hearts and our minds in the right spot. And so what I did was I put together uh, a number of famous literary characters that have a famous best friend and a famous arch nemesis. And I want to see how we do as a community, if we can, if we can guess who they are, will show us. Uh because we got Superman here. We got Sherlock Holmes, Captain America, Harry Potter, Caddy Heron, uh, Optimus Prime, Batman uh, with no last name, who, who needs no last name, Mario, and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, how do we do? How do, how do you think we can do as a community? Well, I want to know, Superman's best friend, survey says, Lois Lane would be a good, a great guess. And, and I think an argument could be made. I'm, I'm, we'll see what happens. What about his arch nemesis? Okay, so Lex Luthor, I heard some other things. What about Sherlock Holmes, best friend? Worst enemy, Moriarty. What about Captain America, best friend? Oh, Iron Man. Well, you know, they did fight a lot like best friends at times. They went to war over it. Uh, we, might, we might go Bucky Barnes. What about his worst enemy? Red Skull. Yeah, Harry Potter, best friend? Ron Weasley, maybe Hermione, or if you just read the books and didn't watch the movies, Hermione. you know, you didn't really know how to pronounce it. <laughs> and his worst nemesis. We got, oh, oh, you shall not be named. Yes. Draco Malfoy for sure. No, I don't know. We'll see. What about Caddy Heron? You guys know who Caddy Heron is, right? Who was her best friend? Janice, obviously we all know. It now who was her worst enemy? Regina George. I mean, just chills go down your spine when you mention that name, doesn't it? Optimus Prime, best friend, worst enemy. Megatron, Batman, best friend, Robin. Yeah, and it, you know, could be a number. We we could be talking, uh, you know, Dick Grayson. We could be talking Tim Drake. Maybe Jason Todd. I mean, who knows? Maybe Su- Superman. An argument could be made for Superman. What about his worst enemy, Joker, Mario, Luigi, and bowser obi-wan kenobi this is a good one because his best friend is anakin skywalker and his worst enemy is darth vader it's the same person come on how great is star wars will you show us how, how how do we do how do we do i think we did pretty good i think now there's you know some of this is debatable but i think pretty much these are the people who they are their best friends and their worst enemies, and the thing about best friends and worst enemies, is there's a lot of emotion attached to a best friend and a worst enemy, isn't there? Let's 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 look at a bell curve. You guys remember the bell curve, like from psychology 101? This this is kind of the, just the bell curve, the way that you know typically people are grouped in statistics. Whoever took statistics, I hated statistics one. I I was so bad at it. Statistics two was better. But if you were gonna put all of the people in the world on a bell curve, it might be something like this, okay? Over here on this far right, we would have, survey says, "made of honor, right? You're, 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 you're maid of honor, your best man. That's, that's like the one person who, you know, you love the most, that you care about the most, who's meant the most to you in your life, and then you've got your bridesmaids, second tier, best friends, right? Your, your, your groomsmen. And then you've got the B team, the wedding party, right? The, uh, the ushers. It, then you've got wedding guests, you know, just the people that you're going to invite to your wedding. And then you've just got people, right? Then there's just a giant chunk of humans that are just people. You don't have any strong feelings about one way or the other. Right, they're just they're just people. They just exist. You don't take time to think about them. You don't take time to feel about them. They're just they're just there. Then you've got people you don't really enjoy. And you're, just, you're like ah, oh, I mean, if I had to choose, I'd be like, Ugh, I don't know, I don't really enjoy. But then you got people you don't like. People just rub you the wrong way, right? People that frustrate you. People that you definitely don't want to be around. And then you've got your enemies. These are people that have done something to you that is awful. And then you got your arch, arch nemesis. Right? You, when you hear arch nemesis, is someone come to your mind? You have a bunch of arch nemesis? This is, this is it? Arch nemesis? Arch nemesis? I'm not really sure. That's why there's only one, because there's no plural for it, okay? Arch nemesis. When you think about an arch nemesis, does someone come to mind? Someone's come to mind right now, and they're sitting in this audience, they're wearing a yellow shirt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm gonna tell you about my arch nemesis from the seventh grade. Back in the fifth grade, there's a guy, and I'm gonna change the names to protect the evil. Uh, we're calling him John. John and I were best friends. We were so close. We, okay, this is an example of how close we were. He let me borrow his Air Jordan 4s for a week. Yeah, I played basketball in him. I got him sweaty. He didn't even care. Like that's how close we were. We were that close. And then in the seventh grade, he just turned his back on me. He betrayed me. He like formed all these groups that were against me. And, and I obviously did nothing to deserve it, at least in my memory, which is getting worse and worse as I get older. But, but like for real, and, and it got so bad that he became my enemy. Like I hated him. Even now when I begin to think about what happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, like I, I still have some emotional like stuff there. Is there someone in your life, in your world who fits that category when you think about them? Or maybe you hear a song or you smell a smell or you see a sight and that person comes to mind and you begin to feel stuff because of how badly you were hurt, how awful they were to you. See, that, that's your arch nemesis. That's your arch nemesis. And here's the reason that we're doing this. Because what I want to know, if we are a group of people who are seeking to demonstrate our passion for God and then demonstrate his passion for people, what we need to know is how does God feel about the vast array of people? Like, does does God have some favorites over here? Does God have some people in the middle he doesn't even really care about? It's like, oh yeah, I created that, dude. I forgot about him. Brady, yeah. Oh man, yeah, great guy. Um, And then does he have people over here? That he just hates with the burning passion, like, like, where is God? Like we know how we feel about these type of people. How does God feel about these type of people? This is pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. Paul begins to tackle these questions. He tackles it a little bit in chapter one, and then here in First Timothy chapter two, he's going to tackle it some more. So I want you you grab your Bibles? Turn to First Timothy, chapter two. First Timothy. Chapter two, and as we read this, there's a couple questions that probably jump to our mind. So chapter one, Paul begins to describe the depth of God's love for him. And if you're like Peter, when you begin to understand the depth of God's love and the fact that we're called to then demonstrate that love, there's a question that jumps to mind. Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? Now, if someone does something to you and it's not that big a deal, like you can forgive them over and over and over. Like that's, that's not that big a deal. But if someone does something to you that's a really big deal, that hurts you deeply, this is an appropriate question. Wait, 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 wait. How many times do I have to keep forgiving someone who hurts me deeply? Peter's like, like up to seven times. And Jesus says, what about seven times seven? What about more than that? And when you're confronted with the depth of God's love that we're called to embody for another person, the next question is, well, how many people do I have to love like that? Because it takes a lot to love a person that deeply, right? It takes a toll on us to love someone that extravagantly. So how wide is that? And then a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Who's my neighbor? Like if I've got to love my neighbor as myself and I love myself a lot, if I have to love my neighbor as myself, is it just my next door neighbor? Is it two doors down? Do I have to go across the street? I don't have to leave my gated community, do I? Like how far do I have to go? I mean, is it all of Florida? Is it all of America? What about Europe? Europe, really? Is it America's cap? Is it Canada? Like how, where do I have to go? What about Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan? What about Russia? What about China? Who's my neighbor? How far out do I have to love people this deeply, God? And here's how Paul addresses the question First Timothy chapter 2, starting verse 1, he says this First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now let's work back through this because Paul does some very brilliant work here. He first says, I want to urge you to pray for all people. And that's a pretty big wide net, right? All people's a pretty big wide net. Like, how are we supposed to pray for them, Paul? And Paul, knowing our questions, he gives us four things. First, he says prayers, and then he says supplications. Do you know what supplications are? That's where you bring up something in prayer, something you're asking for, something you're requesting. So he's saying, bring up people in your prayer request. And, and if you're like me, you know, if, if your heart is as dark as mine is, you're thinking, oh, I can bring up a person in my prayer like, God, stop them from doing that. Stop them from hurting me. In fact, God... Uh, make that check they just wrote bounce. And then you're like, wait, what's a check? Yeah, but Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say just bring people up in your prayers. He says intercessions. Now, intercession is where you're interceding on behalf of that person, meaning you now are putting yourself on their team, praying for their good, praying for their blessing, and then he goes a step further and he says, thanksgivings. Thanking God for all people. Now, maybe when you hear this, maybe when you're Timothy, you're reading this for the first time or the elders or people reading this letter for the first time, you're thinking, okay, okay, do it for all people. And in your mind, you're thinking people over here on this side, the, the best man, the maid of honor, the bridesmaids, the wedding party, right? Like this is where I'm thinking all people, And maybe I'm challenged to go to the people I just don't think about very often at all. But man, as soon as you get to this side of the bell curve and you begin to feel those negative feelings, those negative emotions, you begin to have this visceral body response because someone has hurt you deeply. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no way that's what Paul is talking about. So Paul says, yes, this is what I'm talking about. He says, For kings and all who are in high positions. Now, where is Paul historically at this moment? He's in prison, he's in jail. And who put him there? Kings and people in high positions. See, when Paul gives the example that he gives of how we're supposed to pray holistically for all people, he starts with the worst of the worst. The people who have put Paul in prison, who have stripped away his freedom, his ability to go plant churches, his ability to go make disciples of all nations, people who have made themselves Paul's enemy, people who have made themselves God's enemy. That is the example that Paul gives when he tells us we're supposed to pray for all people. And you know who's included in that? Who is the emperor at the time? Anyone know? Nero. Nero. Now, if you're gonna have a discussion with people at a party and you're gonna talk about who are the top 10 worst people of all time, Nero's probably gonna come up in the discussion. The atrocities that Nero committed against Christians are unspeakable. It's horrible what he did to Christians He's horrible. Like when you're thinking of the worst people in the world, he should be someone that would come to your mind because of all of the awful things that he did, especially to Christians. And Paul says in here, he includes Nero, all people in high positions, pray for them. And don't just bring them up in your prayers, but pray blessing upon them and then thank God for them. And he says, this does two things. And the first thing he says this he says, so we can lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now, this would have rung true with the uh, Ephesians who were gonna uh, be taught by Timothy after having read this letter. Remember, there was a riot in Ephesus and the riot, in this riot, they were trying to stop these Christians from spreading the gospel because they were costing them uh, financial gain when they were making all of these idols. And then when someone in a high position quieted them down and said, hey, these guys aren't doing anything wrong and they spread out, this would have been an example that Paul lived, that the Ephesian Christians lived to know that, oh, when there's peace, it's good for spreading of the gospel, right? When Paul's not in prison, he then can go around and plant churches, right? And so Paul says, one, it's good for the gospel, but then two, he says it reflects the heart of God for people. We are called to pray in depth, not just supplications, but also intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, because that reflects the heart of God. He says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. And then he says this, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, if you're not convinced yet, I'm gonna give you the example of what God did in and through me and is continually calling me to do. If you look at the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, it's about a certain group of people. What what were they called? What was their nation called? Israel or Israelites. Who was everybody else? Gentiles, right? There's the the beginning of the scriptures are focused in on the Israelites. And Paul says, God called me, commissioned me specifically to go out to those people who are on the outside, those people who are on the outskirts, those people who were the enemies of Israel that God so loved that he sent me to the Gentiles, When you look at the scope of God's love, when you look at the breadth of God's love, it blows our mind. And we are called because our created end is to display God's love for people to reflect that same heart of love for all people. Now, this is not something new that Paul is just coming up with for the first time. This is not something brand new. He's not not just making this up. This is actually the teaching about God and his character towards people throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter two. So probably on page two. That's a pretty easy one to find. Genesis chapter two, and this is the second account of creation. And in the second account of creation... It starts with this desert wasteland. Has anyone ever been in a, in a desert wasteland before? Have you ever thought to yourself, yeah, how, did, how could life ever exist out here? Or that's the picture, is there's this scenario where life could not exist. Now, if you're in a desert wasteland, what is the most important thing for life to exist? Water, absolutely. So now God creates a garden. It's a garden up on a mountain, he takes a human and he places the human in the garden. And then he begins to describe, and for the longest time, I've read this thing I don't know how many times. And I always wondered, what is this paragraph doing here? What a strange aside. It's totally off the topic, it's totally off the point. Why is this here? But let's read it together, starting in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. It says this A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. And there's where there's gold. Nice. And the gold of that land, it's good. It's good gold. I like that. Bedellium, onyx stones are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Who else has read that and thought, great. I I love that you, you gave us this information. I have no idea why this matters. Let me tell you, this is why this matters. Because on page two of the Bible, God wanted to make sure that we knew what his heart is for people and not just any kind of people. The first one flowed in the land of Havilah. Who knows what giant group of people was centered in the land of Havilah? Rhymes with Ishmaelites. Anyone? Ishmaelites. Yes, that's it. That's it. Totally. Now, what about the the water that flowed down to the land of Cush? The land of Cush is just south of Egypt where the Nile River comes from. And Nile River gives life to what group of people? The Egyptians. The Tigris says it flows through Assyria, which gives life to what group of people? The the Assyrians, and then the Euphrates gives life to what group of people? The Babylonians. Now, if you were to look through the entirety of the Old Testament, entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, and you were to come up with the four worst enemies of the people of God, you would come up with the Ishmaelites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. And that God, with geography, demonstrates his love for his enemies. That God is pouring out the water of life out of Eden and pouring it out to those who hate him. That's the heart of our God. You can fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 and God's calling of Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a what? Blessing to who? all the families of the earth. You can look at the Psalms. You can look at uh, the, the prophets. You can look at Jonah. God sends Jonah to where? Nineveh. At the time, they're run by Assurbanipal, who was probably the worst person to ever run that country, ever. And the horrible things that he did to his enemies, it's, 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 it's unspeakable, it's awful. And yet God sends Jonah to Nineveh so that they'll repent. Fast forward to the New Testament. You've got Jesus walking around. He's having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And he says this to Nicodemus, for God so loved what? The world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, it takes three English words to, to, to encapsulate the fullness of what he's trying to say. Whosoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus goes on and he says, hey, God did not send the son to the world to condemn the world, but instead so the world would be saved through him. Right? Jesus sees the heart of God. He is the heart of God in flesh. Paul says it in Timothy. John says in 1 John chapter 2, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, but not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the world. Peter, who also writes scripture, says it this way, God is not slow concerning his promises, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish See, what we see, the picture of God in his heart for all people is that he wants them all to come to a knowledge of the truth. That God loves everyone, even his enemies. Even his enemies. And I tell you what, that is good news when you begin to place yourself on that bell curve, right? Because I, I, mean, I don't know how, how you think of yourself. I mean, you might get up every day, look in the mirror and be like, God, you nailed it. Yes, nailed it. I don't feel that way. Maybe you put yourself over here. That's okay. But maybe you put yourself in the middle. Maybe you think, you know what? God probably just doesn't think about me ever. I, I don't know. Just, I've just kind of been ignored my whole life. I haven't really felt anything from God. I mean, I, he didn't seem like he's angry at me. He doesn't seem frustrated with me, but I don't know. He just he probably didn't even know my name. And then you got over here. Maybe you think about the things that you've done in your life. They are so horrible, so wretched, so awful. The people that you've hurt and the depth that you've hurt them, you think, man, I, I am the enemy of God. I am the worst of the worst. The beauty of the message of what God is like, his disposition towards people is like it's the gamut that he is for. It's the gamut that he sends the rivers of life to. It's the gamut that he sends his son to die for. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And when you think about God's love for you in that way, it's incredible, that that I would be included in the family of God, that I would be someone that Jesus would die for, that I would be someone that could be adopted and have purpose, like what in the world? But then when you begin to see that, oh, but I'm called to then take that love and pour it out. I'm called to display God's love for people. I mean, if you're anything like me, you think that's a lot. I mean, it's hard to love people that we like, right? It's hard to love people that we choose to be with for life. It's hard to be, it's hard to love people that we, you know, the offspring that we have and the kids that we adopt, isn't it? It's hard, much less our enemies. That's a pretty high bar. How in the world are we going to do that? How are we going to love one person to the depth that God loves and much less the breadth of people. How are we going to do that? And I love what Paul does here. First thing he does is he gets practical, and he says, "Just start by praying. Just start by praying for people. What's incredible is prayer does things. that God loves to hear the prayers of his people, and He loves to answer them. That prayer actually works. But prayer also does something pretty incredible. Prayer changes my heart. I'm gonna give you a guarantee. Guarantee. If you begin praying for people in the way that Paul instructs us to pray for people, your heart will change. If you begin to not just bring people up in prayers, but you begin to pray for their blessing, pray for their good. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, He's talking to a, a group of people that have been exiled into Babylon. And he says, pray for the blessing of, their, of the city, of the people of the city, because in their blessing, you will be blessed. If you begin to pray for the blessing of people that have hurt you, people that you're angry with, your heart will begin to change. And then when you get to the point where you can begin to thank God for that person, your heart will begin to change even more. Prayer changes you. It shapes us more fully into the heart of Jesus, into the mind of Jesus, into the way of Jesus. So Paul says, begin by praying because prayer is love, but it also changes and shapes you to reflect that love that we're called to reflect. He says, you are the ones who put God on display, right? There's a world out there who wants to know what's God like. What does he think about me? What does he feel about me? How is his disposition towards me? Maybe, maybe I, I feel forgotten, unknown, or maybe I feel like I'm his enemy. What does God think about me? And God says, I'm gonna show them what I think about them. Here's the church. Church, go out and display my love and begin by just praying for people. And the second thing, which is so important, is to remember that we're not doing this in our own strength. If you're anything like me, you feel like you have a limited capacity, a severely limited capacity, not just to love one person to the depth, but to love anyone else beyond that. It gets overwhelming to me when I think about like displaying God's love to a bunch of people, it's hard. And the beauty is, it's not my strength. It's not my power. It's not even my love that I'm pouring out. It's the love of God that has been poured into my heart that I'm a conduit of. That I have been empowered by God's spirit to love people the way that Jesus loves people. You and I, followers of Jesus, have God's spirit. He has poured his love and his power into our hearts. And so we can, in fact, love the breadth to the depth. Not with our own love, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God gives us in the overflow that he provides. In the picture of the temple that God gives to Ezekiel, he sees this water trickling out of the temple and it begins to flow everywhere and bring life everywhere it flows. And I think the teachings of scripture are that we become that river. That that river that is sent out into the world to bring life where there is death, to display God's love for even his enemies. How incredible is our God? It's so important that we know when we look at our own life and we begin to place people along that bell curve, we realize that over here, our arch nemesis, it's not a human. Our enemies, they're not humans. If someone is flesh and blood, they're not our enemy. Our enemy, Paul says clearly, is, are the, the demons, the devil, the spiritual powers and authorities at work. Everyone else at the very most is someone who's been deceived by the enemy that we can be for because God has been for us radically while we were his enemies, while we were his persecutors, while we were rebels, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now we are empowered to go live out that love and display it to the world so that they'll they'll know what is God like and we'll see his kingdom expand. They will know we are his followers by our love for one another. And then we go out the doors and we display that love to them.